Well, 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 here we are again. Welcome to the second episode of the Last Post Radio Podcast. I'm Gary Mack and... I'm Greg Ross. We do hope that you enjoyed the first one. You know, the first one is always one of those things where it's a bit shaky around the edges, but I think hopefully by the time we get to number 101, well... Who knows? <laughs> we'll all be a couple of days younger. That sounds fantastic. Now, I uh, hear on the grapevine the Tom Toms have been working very loud. You're off to Vietnam any moment. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Yes, indeed. We're going to um, Hoi An, Gary, Da Nang and uh, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. I'm looking forward to it very much. Now, you're also going to be visiting some of the the areas that became a, a very distinctive part of the Vietnam War that had so many Americans, New Zealanders and a lot of Aussies. Yep see a tour of duty over a period of years in Vietnam. Are you visiting any of those sites? Yes, indeed, Gary. It, it will be part of, uh, part of what we do, and uh, certainly for the magazine, it would be, uh, it's an, going to be an integral part of the Anzac Day edition. Yes. And uh, you're looking forward to that very much. There's some memorials and um, museums, etc., and a lot of information from locals in those areas too. You're away for about a month. Yes, we've got a lot to do and a lot of places to see, and I didn't want to rush it. I wanted to make sure that we got good coverage in each of these areas, Gary. So, for instance, um, Hoi An, we're based there at a place called Riverside Impressions, and uh, we'll just use that as a base and then hop on a train, preferably, or a bus, and just go and see some some areas that we have to see. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be a learning experience for me. I've never been there before. You... uh are available to take the odd phone call if the reception is okay, where you happen to be going, Matt, and, and we may well do a telephone hookup. Mate, whatever time it is, as long as it's not 2am in the morning, I'll be there to answer it. I'll look forward to speaking, and certainly doing some live crosses would be um, a wonderful thing, and uh, just to give people a feel of what it's really like over there. Good, I'll look forward to that, and uh, watch out for your phone to light up at 2am in the morning. Mate, I might bother you. I might bother you. <laughs> Gary, I'm in this really exciting place. Yeah, not now, Greg, not now. I think the time difference is not all that much different to where we are. Uh, they're placed geographically or strategically close to our timelines, I think. Yes. So if we've got to get out of bed at some ungodly hour of the morning, then that's fine by me. Well, you know what they said, Gary? He who gets out of bed early rules the day. Yes. I don't know if that's true, but... Well, you know, they say the early bird catches the worm, and that's what I had for breakfast. Uh, Worms. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what's in store for us in this episode, Greg? Last year, late last year, Claire and I were driving um, back through Canberra around um, that area and we came across this beautiful French restaurant, Les Très Bons, run by Christophe and Josephine Gregory. Now, since then, Christophe and Josephine have sold that and concentrated more on an exciting facet of their business, which is called the World Food Tours, Gary, where they go uh, practicing French cuisine, which includes Australia, New Caledonia, Italy and France, of course. And they met, they met in New Caledonia, these two, and it's a very romantic story, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in detail one day when I get permission to go ahead and tell the story, but it's a beautiful thing. So I spoke with Christophe just a few days ago, Gary, and um, I asked him, how did French cuisine come to rule the world? Alors, bonjour, Greg. Alors, French cuisine, you know, it's always a, a 
very, very popular and uh, tempting. Huh? Uh, in a world, Paul Bocuse in the 80s used to say, France got the best terroir and the best cuisine in the world. Remember that. Beautiful too. Beautiful place. Uh, the French cuisine um, is, a, is a mixture of many great things. And of course, we're lucky enough in Australia, we'll talk about the French-Australian connection in a moment, but we're lucky enough to have you and Josephine in Australia and bringing some of your beautiful, wonderful food uh, to Australians. And of course, there is opportunities for us to join with you in these magnificent journeys. You, you're going to the Yarra Valley, I believe, in March. I'm very, very proud actually to uh, to present this tour because it's very, very special, especially for the people who can't uh, travel to France for many different reasons. So we can present the best of the best of French culinaire, French gastronomy in the Australian terroir, uh, which is amazing. We've got amazing people who share their knowledge and their passion you know, in Australia. So Yara Valley is a really, really good example between such a very special chef like right. Philippe Mouchel, who was the executive chef of Paul Bocuse for many, many years. Gabriel Gatté will join us and share a cooking class with us. Gabriel was the first person here French celebrity chef to share his knowledge and his passion mm. uh, with the Australian on this terroir. We all love Gabriel. <laughs> we, we love you and Josephine too. And Gabriel was there for us and magnificent. So Yaravale, it's, it's a really special place. Uh, I was amazed when I visited this place not so long ago. And uh, for me, I was uh, I was in France, basically, mm. especially in some very, very special places like uh, Dominique Par Portes Vineyard, uh, Chandon, etc., etc. So we, we would like to share with you this place, this terroir, French cuisine, uh, relax with you, uh, play pétanque, which is always a very, very good part for the French. And of course, drink and test the best of the best. That's in Australia, France in Australia, in Yarra Valley. So that's early March coming soon from the 5th to the 8th of March. 5th to the 8th of March you've got a chance to join in the experience of great French cuisine. And being here in Australia, Christophe says, if you can't get to France, then you go to the Yarra Valley. And I know it's a beautiful area, Christophe. There's so much there to see and do. In this place, you know, that's in Australia. Uh, I invite everybody to visit our website and to see all the information about this tour. It's Chef Christophe and Josephine.com.au. You will get all the information www.chefchristophandjosephine.com.au. Absolutely. And also for your wonderful um, world food tours, of course, that you have to, uh, aside from the Yarra Valley, it's this amalgamation of, of tastes and flavours and cuisines that you take to various parts of the world that make your tours such an exciting prospect, Christophe. I, for one, and you know The Last Post magazine and the radio show, can't wait to get over there and report live on what's happening to these beautiful food and beautiful spots around the world. Now, of course, you came to Australia via New Caledonia, which is a, a beautiful place about, I don't know, 900 miles east of, of Australia, New Caledonia. Very romantic, of course, which is befitting seeing as you and Josephine connected there. What brought you to Australia? And if you could tell listeners your feelings of the importance and the history, I guess, of the French-Australian connection. I believe there's your mother's village comes into this somehow. It was very important for me to uh, to come here and to uh, share 
minority in Australia. Don't forget one thing. You know, uh, La Perouse came only one week after James Cook. In one week time, it could be French here in Australia. <laughs> Just a little bit. But <laughs> well, many people would have preferred that. <laughs> anyway, James Cook discovered also New Caledonia. That's why it's called New Caledonia. Okay, he lived this beautiful uh, territory to the French. So New Caledonia is only three hours from us. Uh, we are neighbor, basically. That's a, a beautiful French ter territory, very mm -hmm. special in a sense of the culture, the, the, the people, and the, the, the terroir is very, very unique. We've got a beautiful lagoon, so we've got a seafood from the lagoon, not from the farm, which is really different for the taste, yes. and so much different uh, high quality of fruits and vegetables native from the place. This is a tropical place. We always going over there early June. Why? Because look, from Bangador, it's it's always at this time of the year really cold. It's winter. It's minus five or minus six. It's quite depressing. Not so far we, from Canberra, we know how cold it gets in Canberra. So yes, which is good too for the travel. But you know, we'd like to get a bit of hot weather, beautiful scene, beautiful food. So that's it's New Caledonia. I uh, met my beautiful partner over there, Josephine, and it's always a pleasure to share this very special place with you. So New Caledonia, that's uh, from the third to the eighth winter here in Australia. I invite you to follow us and to uh, test this beautiful place of La Nouvelle Caledonie. Yeah, a well said, Christophe. And that's in June? That's in June, early June. New Caledonia in June, Yarra Valley in March. Um, the Australian-French connections, Christophe, what, what do you say, you've got to say about that? Where I'm coming from, so northeast of France, Lorraine, Vosges, not far from the German border. My grandfather went to the first and the second world war. Okay, he was 16 for the first, 40 for the other one. So all wow. his life was in a war. He did not die in a war. But wow. he was looking after me when I was a little boy and I heard so many, many stories from yes. him. Yep. They were interesting. Do you know why? We, we've, we've got the Austrian flag in our village. We've got also the Canadian flag and the English wow. flag especially the Australian flag. Why? Because we've got a young Australian pilot who uh, fight for us for our freedom today. So we have to say thank you, this is the Australian. Everybody know that over there. That is very, very important. And this young Australian pilot died for us in my mom village, a small village on the name of Grand Chourbelon. And we managed to uh, find a family in Australia of Eric Moore Thompson coming from Western Australia. And for oh. us, the message was we had to uh, tell this story because we did not want him to feel he died for nothing. You know what I mean? That was for mm. our freedom. We know that we've got lots of gratitude. So that's the place, the connection between France and Australia. It's really, really uh, very, very important. We know the sacrifice to all these uh, young farmers who uh, sacrificed their life for us. Uh, yeah. For me, that's like a return in Australia to say thank you to all these guys and to contribute now in Australia. It's a brilliant story, Christophe, and it's a brilliant. And listeners are pleased to hear of your understanding and perception of Australian-French connection. I know personally, from a young age, I became aware of the French that gratitude to the Australians, particularly, I think, in, in rural France during World War One and Two. Of course, 
we went over there in World War One and, and had to go back again in World War Two not long afterwards. But it's a beautiful exchange of um, gratitude and also obviously um, sacrifice. And we are thankful for your understanding of that. And, and thank you for being French. That's basically it. Uh, I, I am lucky to be French, to get my freedom and to be part of uh, many different special events like uh, um, Bastille Day, which is the uh, 14th of July, the revolution, the French Revolution, really, really important uh, for the French. Yeah. <laughs> Bastille Day, magnificent. Now, um, once again, listeners can um, go to www.christophandjosephine.com.au. Uh, is that right, Christophe? That's right, exactly. So, okay. really special tour over there because uh, I bring you home where I, I, I was born, of course, and uh, from the hospitality school when I learned to cook, okay, from the best places, farm, uh, passionate people, uh, wine, wine confrerie, uh, brotherhood, wine confrerie, etc., etc. It's a healing place as well because the nature is quite unique and you, you will feel something uh really warm in your heart. That, that's all I can say. So I, I can't say more than that. Please visit the website and uh, see, you, see you soon. A très bientôt, les amis. Yes, no, magnificent stuff. Christophe, Australian veterans, of course, are well aware of the connection between France and Australia. So we thank you very much for that once again. Have we got a recipe this week or what? Oh, absolutely, Greg. Look, <laughs> I, I cut so much rhubarb. And in our place, in Vosges, Vosges-Lorraine, because we've got so much rhubarb, what we are doing? Le vin de rhubarb, the rhubarb wine. So I've got a recipe for you. Oh, Listen, can't think of anything recipe. better. <laughs> <laughs> rhubarb wine. Listen, everyone. Okay, we need five kilos of rhubarb, white or red, that's the matter. Okay. Yep, yep, five kilos. 1.5 kilo of sugar, white sugar. 1.5 sugar. Lemon. Lemon. Yep, yep, Lemon. Um, yep. And 20 liters of water. 20 liters of water, yep, okay. So first of all, of course, make sure the stick of rhubarb are clean, okay? And mm -hmm. cut the stick into a large dice, okay? Very, very simple. Cut the stick into a large dice, yes. Place all these dice in a big big bowl or big recipient, uh, what, yep. what you've got, because we need uh, something large to put 10 liters of water. So uh, you will add you will uh, place all this uh, rhubarb inside, cut into large dice, and add 10 liters of water, which is half of the quantity I tell you. Uh, we need 20 liters in total, but you will just pour 10 liters, so half of the quantity. Okay, okay 20 liters of water needed, but only 10, 10 liters to start off with. That's right. So you will leave to macerate the water and the rhubarb for one week and stirring every day for three, four minutes. Right. And of course, we'll cover the bowl with yep. a tea tail or something something clean, okay? Yep. In a space not, uh, in, in, not uh, in a hot, uh, hot uh, yep. place. Okay, okay. Yep. yep. After one week, you will just uh, uh, use a, a strainer, okay? And keep all the jus. Put the jus in a large bonbon or darmagiano or another big bowl. And after this, you take the other 10 liters of water, add the sugar in, and bring to the boil. Ah, okay. okay. Okay, so that's when you add the extra 10 liters of water. That's right. Bring to the boil. Okay. 
leave after the, um, this uh, water and sugar to be just warm, not too hot. Take the lemon and use only the zest. So use a zester. Only the zest? Only the zest. Add yep. to the water and the sugar. Right. And add to the jus of rhubarb, basically. Mm -hmm. Leave to ferment it for a good week. Every, every day you will turn again. Okay, leave to and ferment for a week. After a week, you will uh, actually fill your clean bottles with this gullyful uh, rhubarb wine and uh, leave another three or four days until the fermentation. Right. Uh, it's completely stopped. Okay. okay. So you bottle them, Christophe, and then leave for another three or four days? Yeah, it can take some time a week if it's too hot. Okay. After this, you will be able to put a cork in on top of the bottle. Leave the bottle in a fridge and wait. I'm sorry, but you have to wait another three months. <laughs> <laughs> and after after a month, you can open your bottle, okay, and get a beautiful van rhubarb. About santé. I tell you what, I'm going to start making rhubarb wine here and we'll start flogging it off on the street corner. <laughs> so that is a very, very popular uh, drink we, uh, we've got in our place. We, my parents always uh, make uh, rhubarb wine. Yes. And I've got my uh, group with me. Uh, we're doing a blend test of different wines from the place, of course, from the terroir. Yep. And we've got also the rhubarb wine. Nobody can detect it's a rhubarb. It's a Semillon, it's a Sauvignon, it's a beautiful wine. That's right. And you say, no, my friend, it is rhubarb wine. That's right. <laughs> a beautiful way to end our conversation this week, Christophe. And we thank you so much again. And veterans and listeners to the Last Post Radio Show podcast um, can go to www.christophandjosephine.com.au and be treated to some wonderful French cuisine and, of course, the opportunity to join in the World Food Tours, which uh, this year at least start in the Yarra Valley and then, of course, uh, to New Caledonia in June. So what a wonderful experience. And, and thank you for sharing with us, Christophe. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. What a passionate man Christophe is, Greg. He is remarkable. And what about that rhubarb wine? Eh? I'll tell you what, Gary. Well, I say the French are very passionate, mate. And there you've got a good uh, example of that there. The, the rhubarb wine, let's make it. Yeah, let's make it. Uh, I've often said rhubarb, 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 <laughs> you know. And if you get enough people in one room all saying that, rhubarb, rhubarb, it just sounds like a pub. It really does. It does, and the, the rhubarb wine will make itself magically. But, of course, next week we'll be speaking with uh, Christoph again, and uh, this time he'll be telling us how to make truffle pancakes. Oh, you're kidding. Is that right? Hold on to your britches, mate. Mmm. Truffle pancakes, here we come. Okie dokie. Christoph mentioned a name that is very familiar to a number of people in this country because of a very high profile both on radio and on television, and that's Gabriel Gatte. And you've met him? I have. In fact, I've worked with Gabriel uh, back, oh, this would have been, it was during the bicentennial. So what year was that? About 87? 88. 88. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I was working on the greater 3UZ in Melbourne. And I was doing mornings, and it was a magazine-type radio program. And we were living at that time in East Hawthorne, and we did a lot of shopping up and down the Hawthorne shops. And uh, I've gone past a shop that I forget now what was in the shop at the time, uh, but it had closed down, and uh, it was opened up by Gabrielle Gatte. And it was a foodie shop, 
French takeaway food, and it was absolutely sensational. Plus, he was selling a lot of uh, pots and pans and, and oh, all the I remember, culinary Gary, material. Gary, I remember, actually. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, being a bit like a nosy parker, I stuck my nose in the door and made myself known to Gabrielle. And I said, look, I'm running a little radio program. I'm not sure how long it'll go because I'm sort of in the interim uh, prior to 3UZ at that time moving back into racing. He'd set himself up with a wonderful shop and I thought, this is going to be worth an interview on the wireless. So I invited him in and he was so good I had him come back in on a weekly basis for a little while. Oh, so you did that. You were the, you were the one that spoke to Gabriel because I remember hearing him in those days on the radio. Well, there you go. He went off and he did a lot of stuff on television at that time and I saw him only recently uh, at um, the Melbourne reception, if you will, uh, of the marriage of one Norman Rowe and Samantha Gowing. How beautiful. And they invited a number of their friends uh, to, a, to a, a little quiet Melbourne reception, and Gabrielle was there on that day. Of course, his association with um, Norm's wife, Samantha Gowing, has been long. Yeah. So uh, it might be nice to even perhaps talk to Gabrielle Gatte at a, an appropriate time in the future. I think that would be a lovely idea, Gary. And, of course, Christoph and Josephine um, Gregori um, know... Uh, know Gabrielle very well so that would be that would work wonderfully well we can get them all here in the studio cooking some French truffle pancakes I'm ready for that when that comes up next episode episode three stand by the last post has had a relationship with the Fazi RSL care in Melbourne, for close to a decade. Uh, Chris Gray is the general manager at Vasey RSL Care. Um, and Chris has got such an interesting story. 17 years service, and also with the reserves and peacekeepers uh, at Timor, Middle East, as a carpenter. And uh, I speak with uh, with Chris about his uh, his background and also the amazing work that's being done at the V Centre, giving it's the Veteran Empowerment Program, Veteran Empowerment Program, for veterans there at the Vasey RSL Care. So I began by asking uh, Chris to give us some lowdown on his background. Yeah, no worries, Greg. Um, happy to share, happy to share. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I did spend about 17 years, well, not about, just on 17 years in the, in the regs, um, engineer. Uh, um, started as a, as a combat engineer. So um, as I explained to my civilian friends, it's a little bit like a battlefield labourer. You know, we're a bit of jack of all trades, if you like, as a combat engineer. So building bridges, you know, explosives, that sort of stuff. Um, at some point, I think three or four years into that, um, I applied to, to go and do my trade in the Army. So I went off down to Aubrey Wodonga, as a, did my trade as a carpenter and joiner. And, um, and from there, it sort of just ticked, ticked along. And, and for the next 12 or 13 years as a carpenter and joiner in the, in the Army, Towards the late 90s, we were quite busy. So um, there were quite a few trips here, here and there, um, obviously Timor in the Middle East and uh, a couple of peacekeeping sort of trips uh, or back into Timor and um, where else? In, into, uh, actually, after the tsunami, which uh, in, two, uh, in 2005 was another interesting uh, trip. But, yeah, look, I, I, I've, I've, for those 17 years, I, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I loved loved every minute of it. Isn't that fantastic? And... Um, uh, uh... A carpenter and a joiner, um, a wonderfully <laughs> blue-collar class thing that you've taken into the army and um, made the world a better place by your helping people. 
I think there was one story, Chris, and I heard this through the little birdie, um, that you'd actually helped to build a, a, a bridge in, in Papua New Guinea. Is that right? And w what was the story behind that? I believe there was a there'd been people losing their lives trying to cross this river or something. Yeah, that, that, that's spot on, Greg. Um, and I don't know where you're getting these little birdies from. They're good. They're good sources too. Um, yeah, look, it, that was actually before I, I did my trade. It was I was part of the, the resources troop uh, in three CR in Townsville, and and being the early '90s, there wasn't a lot of action. You know, there wasn't much happening, and there was a fair bit of training going on, and so anything to sort of break the monotony of going to Shellwater Bay and to high range for those people who have spent a bit of time in, in, in Townsville, they'd understand. But, um, yeah, look, we, we, uh, we were lucky enough to get a trip over to, to New Guinea, up into the highlands around Ley, um, the Nairobi River. Uh, the, 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 the feedback was there were a number of uh, local villages, the kids and, and, and parents, I suppose, losing their lives crossing this, this river when it was in flood and, for anyone who knows that the wet season in New Guinea, it, it gets pretty, pretty, uh, you know, tri, tri, uh, heavy, heavy rain. So, um, yeah, we had the opportunity to go over there and build this bridge, and um, as, as part of the support squadron and, and working with the trades, I think they actually sort of cemented my decision to go and do my trade certificate within the within the army. Um, it was a, a fantastic job, you know, a little suspension bridge. Uh, it was, I think it was about 130, 140 meters long across this river. Fantastic. Right. Fantastic job, just you know, up working with um, uh, the local PNGDF as well. There was a you know, I think a troop plus of those guys giving us a hand and um, engaging with the, the local villagers, you know, for for ceremonies and and openings and you know, lunches and dinners like? and all that. that different things. Yeah, what was that like, Chris, with mixing with the locals and being able to engage on that level to be part to feel part of that? And what was that like? For a young bloke from the country, what an eye opener! You know, I'd been in the army for you know half a dozen years or something, not even, and um, to be you know shipped off over to, to New Guinea and then up into the highlands, you know, to to, to see the the way that these guys were still living, it was just amazing, and 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 the joy, I think, you know, like just a simple a simple uh, bridge, you know, putting it across this river, the 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 joy and the, the I guess the, the I mean the, the difference that you can just make by doing such a, a you know I mean it was a it was a great project it was, it was a small project in the in the big scheme of things but the difference you know those things make and uh, it was just amazing just to be a part of it um, honestly mm. Um, mm. You know, over the over the journey I think I, I really look back at that one and just think you know that was a fantastic opportunity for for a young soldier to be involved in and it sort of shaped shaped who I am I reckon. So how long did it take you to build the bridge and were you engaging with the locals all the time you were doing this? Oh, look, it, it was a, we set up a little bit of a camp. So they, we, I guess they were pretty inquisitive, the, the, the locals. They would always be around. But generally speaking, no, look, it was sort of a, a, a Sunday thing is where we went and engaged with those locals if, if we could. It was yep. around the clock sort of, you know, 10 and 12-hour days, seven days a week. But we sort of rotated and, and made sure everyone got an opportunity to go and engage. But... Um, no, it was, I think the, the whole project was about a, a five or six week sort of, uh, I guess, project. It took us about that long. There was a little bit of a gap in the middle where we, we got away for a couple of days whilst the uh, the concrete was curing, as they say. And we were able to shoot down to Madang for a couple of days R&R. &R. That was quite good. A little bit of yeah. swimming, a little bit of diving. Fantastic. But just a beautiful country, really, yeah. you know, really nice people. 
Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wonderful wonderful experiences, Chris. And um, yes, well, uh, it uh, reinforces what many have said about the uh, the country itself and the people there. Um, mm. So these 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 memories, these things that you've been through, I do must say that tradies and doing what you do are admired by a lot of people. I have this mate who's been in the public service. He's just retired after about 40 years. And he said to me after a couple of years, beers one night, he said, Greg, I just wish, I said, what do you, are you happy with? I, I just wish I'd been a tradie, you know. I wish I'd been able to do something practical to help people. <laughs> Instead of pushing well, the look at, yeah, look at, yeah, look at, and, and, and I guess, it, yeah, being, I guess, uh, yeah, the son of a, of a carpenter, it was only a woman who was destined, I think, supposedly to, to go and do something like that. But, yeah, look, it does give you, a, I guess, a, a good feeling being able to help. But, I mean, yeah, look, you can help in a lot of different ways too, so don't worry about that. You don't have to yeah, that's true too. To, to that's true out. too. Yeah, that's um, cool. What about your experiences in East Timor and um, also, I guess, the Middle East? What uh, what, what about those experiences? Were they, they similar in, in character building or what, what were they, just a brief, what were they like? Yeah, so um, Interfet 99, um, I got called up as a Rio to go and re- reinforce. I was opposed to, to one CR, and, and it was three CR who were for, who were in, in country, and they just they called up and and uh, needed an extra set of set of hands. So um, yeah, I was lucky enough to get a get a gig and went over and um, was part of the uh, again the, the old unit twenty five support squadron three uh, CR and um, under Kev Van and um, as the RSM is a, a Fantastic fella, but anyway, yeah. Look, we um, we did some really really important work there. We we provided some, I guess, low level accommodation for our infantry guys on the on their return back out from out bush. They'd come back into the into the towns and um, sort of rest up and 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 get ready to go again on their patrols. So we provided them with, I guess, you know, basic sort of creature comforts, a little bit of running water if we could, and a bit of shelter. Um, one of the big projects over there for the for the for the unit was to to rebuild a bridge down at I think it was Little Mimo. It was right on the river, right on the border, right um, uh, between east and west. And um, yeah, that was a again, it was just a, an awesome job to be a part of. You know, rebuilding a church right, all the way through. I mean, it was completely destroyed. Well, all but completely destroyed. Re-roof and, and all of the, the the pews and everything that we had to rebuild. And and again, a, a fantastic ceremony towards the end of that. Well, towards the end of our deployment, but but also the end of that uh, project. Whole community, unbelievable. You know, the, the the joy and the and the 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 difference you can just make by simply just. Providing a gathering point, you know that that church. Yeah. They, were, they were quite, uh, I guess, um, religious. You know, generally speaking, uh, the Timorese, and um, yeah, to, to bring that church back to life um, and to see the, the the joy that it brought the community. Again, you know, simple things, um, but fantastic life, life changing, life changing. Yeah, marvelous stuff, and being able to contribute to uh, to their needs. In such a way, also obviously leaving you with a, with a good feeling. What a time to be over there too. Ninety nine, you said. Yeah, yes, under uh, Sir Peter, Sir Peter's yeah. uh, guidance. Yes, I tell you what. Yeah, that would have been an experience and a half. Now, of course, um, with the peacekeeping, um, peacekeeping itself. Do you think it's something that's sometimes overlooked, um, Chris? Do you think peacekeeping itself is overlooked because? Uh, it is a great role that is played in, in peacekeeping. 
Yeah, look, I think for mine, I I, I have it up there. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't go to Afghanistan. I was in Iraq, um, and I guess it's you know a completely different role um, as part of that. But I had two trips into Timor in '99, and then back as a reservist actually in 2011. Right. Um, and and I think yeah, look, they are important. I think that I guess the you know, and without getting sort of too political or anything like that, I guess just for me personally, I, I mean, I, I, I a lot of growth uh, as, a, as a person to go away and actually, uh, I guess, assist, you know, uh, those communities. And I guess being the carpenter, you're not, you know, you're not infantry, you're not out on any sort of front line, you're not patrolling or anything like that. You're there to provide, I guess, assistance either to the to the force or, or to the community, you know, the hearts and minds stuff, as they, you know, you would have heard, you know, yes. we hear about when they talk about those sorts of things, yes. winning the hearts and minds. And I guess that that was part of our role, as, um, particularly in Timor towards the end. I, I think that they probably were, you know, looking for us to move on and, and, and let, let, let them sort of manage their own affairs. But um, towards the end, yeah, we were doing some fantastic jobs and there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of good come out of that. Um, and, and, and as I said, personally, I, I mean, I look back at it, um, and it, it sort of it shapes the person uh, who, who I've become. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, well said, well said, Chris. And indeed, experiences of such uh, magnitude would uh, would help to shape you. Um, and it, it's a marvelous thing that you speak about. Um, look, of course, the role, your role, obviously, is a complex one. Now, we talk about, I guess, what happens when a person leaves the force. Chris, I know that, like else, like everyone in in this country, we're going through a bit of a crisis with housing and homelessness, etc. But as part of that, but also away from that, generally, what does happen to to people when they leave the force? Is it satisfactory what's going on at the moment? I think I think for the for the look, you know, again in my experience, Greg, you know, my, I had a fantastic transition. You know, I can't fault it. Um, you know. Fantastic bosses. I think for for, for some there, there there is a there is a struggle and there is a there is a need for additional support. Um, we know that, that you know just hearing the stories coming out of the, the the royal commission around that transition piece. We know that there's 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 some that do struggle. Um, I guess for a variety of reasons. You know, some being medically discharged and not necessarily having the time to. Uh, I guess prepare for that for that uh, discharge. Others, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, have not necessarily prepared well enough, um, be it their own uh, or, or other factors. Um, we know that you know there's what around six thousand sort of leave the uh, the ADF each year is is what I would have you know the figures that I've I have. Um, and, and out of that, you know, there's a there's a there's quite a few that that, that struggle, um, and in particular, there's even a, a smaller cohort, but a, an increasing cohort around those veterans who who become homeless um, or, yes. or need some additional housing support. So, um, you know, I guess we can always do better. Um, it's not to sit back and rest on our laurels. You know, as I said, I had a great transition, but others don't, and I guess I'm in it now in a in a, a fantastic position to be able to assist those who, who um, I guess, mm. need some additional support. Mm. Mm. That's right. Um, and that's right. And that, that's a sign of um, of strength too. Obviously, when one doesn't have a significantly bad experience and yet is spoken, it's spoken about and known that some people do have uh, experiences that could be more favourable, 
in transition, then of course it's good to be able to reach out and talk to these people. I get what what can be done to to help. The, I mean, we've been covering the housing and homelessness thing for some time, but what what do we do to look after this group, Chris? Well, I guess for, for us at Vasey, we've um, you know we, we, we've a lot for a long time. I guess you know we've considered ourselves you know looking after our more senior veterans within our residential aged care and and more recently our home care, I guess uh, side of things. And that's that's obviously supported by the federal government through My Aged Care. Um, so you know, we have that in place. And I think for for Victorian veterans, more our senior veterans. You know, we do we do uh, provide a pretty good service there around home care and um, and our and our um, residential aged care. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the the other pieces that that I guess that we can always strive to do better, and and, and that's a, the affordable accommodation for some of our veterans who, again, you know, for whatever reason, find themselves in, in a in a spot of bother and, and need a little additional support to to maybe get themselves back on their feet mm-hmm. uh, at any point in their time. Post post service, um, mm-hmm. we've got. I think our, our numbers ran at about two two ninety five units across the state now, where we provide that accommodation, independent living, um, one and two bedroom units. That's right. Um, I had heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've we've got, I guess, a number of little villages through, if if you want to call them villages or or, or um, yeah, villages units. Um, through metropolitan Melbourne, and more recently, we've expanded into Wodonga with a with a couple, and and down into Warrnambool with oh, a thousand units as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That, you know, noting that you know not all veterans are living in in, in metropolitan Melbourne. You know, we need to try and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess our regional areas a little bit more, and we, we've been mindful of that. You know, there are there's another supporter or another provider of accommodation. Uh, carry on, and and they're. Probably That's more right. regional based. So we've, yep. we've worked with those guys yep. um, just to to not overlap our services at this stage and 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 try and provide as best and as most uh, most units as we can. Yeah, yeah. yeah we deal with uh, we deal with carry on and um, some of the great work they're doing too. So it's wonderful to hear that you're uh, in in a, a partnership, if you like, with with carry on at least doing similar work there. Much needed. Um, the V Centre, as, as it's known at uh, at Bayzi RSL Care. The V said, "Is is it a circuit breaker? Do you think, Chris?" Yeah, it's exactly that, Greg. I think it's it's it, it, yeah, it's spot on with with that. Uh, I guess analogy or that that description. Um, we a few years back, we we sort of identified, I guess, a bit of a gap, if you like, around around that, and how do we how do we stop those veterans sort of re-entering, whether it be a, a mental health service or a, an, an AOD service or that you know the homelessness services? How can we how can we just stop that? I guess veterans coming back into those and, and well assist. Let's let's say and, and yep. we, we I think it was yeah probably three years ago we looked at it and said okay we we we, we need to do better. We need to, to to have something there that's going to be somewhere between independent living and and that higher clinical care. And so we undertook some research. You know, we spoke to the to the um, to the ex-service community, the veterans. We went uh, interstate, international. Um, we spoke to Veterans Aid in the UK and um, uh, and, and Erskine in Scotland, um, and they were they were fantastic with some of their uh, insights into what what's worked for them. And in particular, the guy the guys uh, Hugh Milroy from uh, Veterans Aid in 
in the UK. His, his service at New Belvedere House is, is really closely aligned with what we're trying to do at the, at the V Centre. Oh, I see. But, yeah, so the V Centre... Yeah, the V Centre sort of came about after all of that research and, and we, we, as I said, we spoke, we, we had a number of workshops, we, we, we engaged with you know, anyone and everyone, I think, anyone who wanted to listen and anyone who wanted to be a part of it, we, we were quite happy to, to hear their point of view and, um, and yeah. I think we've, we've, we've got a, a fairly robust sort of service that we think is, 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 is going to make a difference in, the, in that space around, yeah. it's not just homelessness, it's, it's, it's around those veterans who just need, like you say, a circuit breaker, just need a little bit more support before they re-enter, I guess, yep. living independently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well said. And that's right. I mean, there are various reasons, um, including homelessness, obviously, that they're in need of uh, some support. And I think um, there's various things being done. I know is it the Jamie Lidcombe Centre in Adelaide, I think, that's doing something similar there. I did go to there and have a look at what they were doing. And I must get down to Vasey RSL Care to, to see what you're doing uh, as a face-to-face thing. I guess with with these various reasons, including homelessness, Chris, that uh, veterans are in need of some practical assistance, I mean, they would leave Vasey with, with some skills to cope, obviously. You can tell us about that in a minute. What's the normal stay? Is it three months, six months, nine months? What, what's the average, do you think? Um, we, look, we did, as, as I said, with some of that research that we did, um, we, we looked at, I guess, the, the typical, you know, person or veteran who might who might partake in, in the in the V centre and 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 the, and the length of time, and, and we think that it's around that sort of six months. So what yeah. we have said is, you know, let, let's let's go out to a twelve month. Let's let's look at twelve months as the the maximum stay. Yep. But then at the same point, you know, if if it does need to push out by a month or two here or there. We've got the flexibility within the program to overly extend that, um, yep. but we really want the, the veterans to come in, uh, you know, feel welcome, feel settled, get in, and and then um, it's all about their journey, mm. and that that's what makes this, I, I guess, this program, the, the the veterans empowerment program at the V Centre, I guess, a little unique in that we we look at what it is each each and ind- individual veteran. Uh, needs and their mm-hmm. wants in, in mm-hmm. order to live that independent life that they they, they sort of I guess they, they really want to do. So we, mm-hmm. we go back and we and we work with the individuals. We you know we get a support network around each of the individual veterans. Um, we develop we develop I guess uh, you know all of the the different things that we, will help them uh, I guess reach those goals uh, mm-hmm. of, of being being able to live in it, and if that's return to work or if it's a volunteer or it's a, a hobby, you know, yes. um, let, let's look at it. Uh, basic life skills, mm. you know, um, mm. if there's some of those missing within within the, the veteran's life, you know. I mean, that would give them great confidence. That would give them great confidence too, Chris, and that's important, I suppose, when trying to reinstate yourself into a position that, uh, that comes easy to some but not to others. That confidence is, is what you give. A confidence and a, and a sense of purpose too, Greg. I think, you know, having that sense of purpose, whether it be volunteering or, or, or you know, return to work or whatever it might be for the individuals, mm-hmm. just having a sense of purpose, a, 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 you know, a, establishing routines, you know, mm-hmm. as much as you know, right. I struggled this morning when my wife said, you know, we, we, we've got to go for a walk, you know, it was after a long weekend, up up and at them and off we go. But you, you establish those routines and I think they're, they're healthy, Healthy for, for 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 most of us. 
I tell you what, that that is ab absolutely um, a, a mental health guide uh, to to most people to establish routines that are positive and productive, and that you can feel good from coming from. And of course, sometimes it can be a journey that uh, is not uh, completed after one or two steps. Sometimes you must keep putting in before you see any results. But but that's an example. And I guess with the V Centre too, and veterans needing assistance, Chris they would then be in a position to leave and offer peer support. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is about, I guess, making sure that, that you know, they, they, the number one, them, you know, that they're in a really, really good spot. And then we would love for them to come back and, and you know, uh, and, and provide that lived experience and, and peer support. Um, mm -hmm. would be fantastic. Um, I'm really, really big on, I guess, um, making sure that, you know, they're in a really, really good spot. Uh, before they, they before they sort of come back, but yeah, we we would welcome them back with open arms and anyone with those lived experience. I think that are in a in a position to to provide support and guidance and, and assistance. Mm. You know, happy and, and would welcome them at any stage. It's um it's really important that I guess veterans see veterans doing well. And you know, I'm following a, a little group out of the UK at the moment. You know, veterans can, of course, we can. You know, it's just yeah. it's just. It's just going back and 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 taking taking a bit of a breather, having a having a bit of a spell, resetting. Again, you, you mentioned it, Greg, that that confidence, uh, the sense of purpose, regaining all of that, and and then you know whatever it is that they want to do, they can do. You know, and I think it's 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 about yeah. establishing those um, yeah. those routines. Yeah, yeah, very very good. And Chris, finally, what um, what's the connection with Ward Seventeen at Heidelberg Hospital? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's it's it's. Um, I guess it's that sort of, as I spoke about earlier, around the uh, the, the the mental health uh, uh, facilities and and the, the AOD or the alcohol and other drug clinics that that sometimes our veterans you know uh, find themselves needing that support. It's mm -hmm. that step down from there. Uh, the V Centre itself is is it shares a boundary with Ward Seventeen, so it couldn't be any better located. You know, personally, wow. I think it's, it's a fantastic precinct you know that we're starting to build there with um rob winther and his team at austin health uh, you know amazing work that they do with the ward and and, and uh, uh other uh supports that they've got within the austin uh group um we've got the v center there uh straight across the road we've got 27 brand new apartments which is you know part of our long-term affordable accommodation program um one of those units we've allocated off to to family members of of V Centre participants. So if we've got, I guess, a participant that's you know in the V Centre, a veteran in the V Centre, and their family are maybe in the country and they want to come and 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 uh, I guess have some spend some some quality time. Yeah, um, we've got an apartment there that, that you know we've allocated off, and and um, we'll get some support into that so it, it look at you know we, we we think we've thought of everything but we we know that we're going to have our ups and downs we know we're going to have to be agile enough to to you know adjust and and, and move i guess the the program itself and 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 i think it'd be remiss if i didn't mention the, the whole collaboration piece you know it's not going to work uh unless you know we can get the support of all of the ex-service community on board and and just let let the ESOs let those groups do what they do well uh, mm. in supporting veterans. We'll put the roof over the head and let all those other other networks do what they do well. And I think that's that's the key to making this thing work. Is 
is that you know that we all work together uh, mm. for the greater good, and that that would be just to see a, a veteran transition come through that on the other side, and then you know enter the the, the community and 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 then be a part of their own community. I think it's uh, that that that'll mm. be a, a smile mm. on my face if we can make that happen. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic stuff, Chris, and of course. Um, all going towards as being um, part thereof of the general community, making the veteran community happier, healthier, and, of course, then making the general community likewise. So that's a beautiful thing that you're doing. Chris Craig, General Manager of ASL Care, talking about the V Centre and your personal journey, which has been bloody interesting. And if we need any work done at uh, the last place headquarters with some carpentry, I'll know who to call now. I've been off the tools once. Way too long, Greg. I wouldn't even know what's, what, uh, which end of the hammer to hold, mate. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with Chris. Chris Gray of Vaziarisel Care here in Melbourne and the good work they do. Well now, Greg, uh, there's another episode of the Last Post Radio Show podcast for another time, uh, episode two. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as uh, I've been sitting here listening to you. It's been a fantastic opportunity to reach out to Australia's veterans and the wider community and give some updates on what's happening in the veteran sphere. And of course, um, more great things coming up next week. Episode three on the way. We hope you've enjoyed this one. Do come back and join us again. I'm Gary Mack and he's Greg Ross. See you later. 